Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code, IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Brilliant. Stephen Hawking once said, If the government is covering up knowledge of aliens, they are doing a better job of it than they do at anything else. As we'll see today, we might want to consider what that would imply about alien governments too. In a previous episode of our Alien Civilization series we looked at hidden aliens, hypothetical civilizations that try to hide from their neighbors, usually out of fear or a desire to be left alone. Today I thought we'd take a look at the flip side of that ones hiding themselves but who are actively involved with their neighbors, the obvious example of which would be flying saucers visiting modern Earth regularly but keeping their presence a secret from us, or at least from most of us. We'll focus mostly on that today, but we won't be limiting ourselves just to examples of aliens visiting civilizations like our own, far less advanced than theirs, and stuck on one lonely planet in a vast galaxy. Now if you're a regular of the channel, you know SFIA spends a lot of time discussing the Fermi Paradox, the apparent contradiction between the vast size and age of the Universe and the seeming absence of any other intelligent life in it. As we've stated before, none of the proposed solutions is without some major flaws, and we tend to group most solutions into a few loose categories. The first is that life, or at least intelligent life, hasn't been detected because it's so incredibly rare, either because life itself is rare, or the pathway to intelligence and technology is rare, or such civilizations don't last long, victims of their own technology, or some combination thereof. As with most of our solutions, combinations are possible, for instance life might emerge rarely, one in a million worlds, produce intelligence rarely when they do, and that civilization might not last long adding up to an extreme improbability. We normally call these filters, and great filters when discussing ones that vastly drop the odds. Our first category of solutions, Category 1, focuses on such options, and is fundamentally the most physical. You don't have to guess at alien psychologies and motivations to justify any of its solutions, only late stage filters like developing advanced technology, accidentally destroying themselves, or desire to colonize the galaxy have any real dependence on their psychology. Our second category, that we cannot detect them but they are out there, often still focuses on the strictly physical, and we analyze and deconstruct solutions like the notion that aliens are common but only recently emerged everywhere, or we just can't hear them because they use something other than radio to talk. But it also begins to move into motivations and psychology, such as why they might all hide from us. Our third category, that aliens aren't just around but actually here already and we don't recognize them, similarly tends to rely on motivations, as do most of our solutions that fall into our fourth category for miscellaneous solutions that don't fit well into the other categories. For the most part, the Alien Civilization series tries to look at those solutions that are focused around behavior and psychology. And often we tend to take a bit of a tongue-in-cheek approach because generally these ones are popular in science fiction but tend to fall apart on serious inspection. 
Not necessarily though, as things you'd not expect a civilization to do, many involve behaviors that are not only plausible but likely, such as leaving primitive civilizations alone, hiding from other civilizations, blowing oneself up, deciding you just don't want to colonize the galaxy, or make a lot of noise. These all have additional problems we discuss in various episodes, but they hit something we call non-exclusivity, essentially the concept that any behavior that relies on everyone doing it, every civilization and often every member of that civilization, don't work for the Fermi Paradox. Even if 99% of alien civilizations hide from each other, or don't make contact with humanity because they don't want to interact with us, or think it unethical, it only takes 1% to break the Great Silence. Furthermore, it doesn't take the whole civilization, who might be coerced or cajoled into some treaty banning contact with us, it would just take a handful of individuals who wish to make contact. And that's where we get into the specific solution of aliens visiting us covertly, the various flying saucers and little green men. What's more, this is not exactly a Fermi Paradox solution, because the whole notion of the Fermi Paradox is to ask where all the aliens are, whereas this approach usually says, right in front of us, most of you just refuse to believe it. In many ways it shares that non-solution status with the one we tend to label as the most likely solution here on SFIA, or least unlikely anyway that the pathway from inorganic chemicals to technological civilization is probably just incredibly improbable and rare, that there is no paradox. We're just assuming without evidence that however low the odds are, they can't be so low that it doesn't happen decently often around all the billions of stars in each of the billions of galaxies. That's another good comparison between these two non-solutions though, Because one of the most common but weakest arguments for aliens among us is that so many people have reported seeing these that even if we assume virtually all of them were lying or wrong, surely some must be true. That's a popular argument but also one we can toss out. First, it's ignoring that even if millions made that claim, while that seems like a huge number, it also means billions have not often including folks who should have seen a reported event. It's very seductive to hear, surely they can't all be lying and wrong, but it carries no weight, because even if we assume quantity of evidence beat out our quality of evidence, millions of folks claiming their horoscopes are accurate while billions claim they do not work would expose the bad reasoning there, surely all those billions saying it doesn't work can't all be wrong either. But before we start getting more into this topic, let me add a caveat. Fundamentally, this solution, while greatly maligned, isn't any worse than most Fermi Paradox solutions, it's actually a good deal better from a logical perspective than most others are. Its big weakness isn't the concept, it's that all the other solutions can counter an absence of evidence by pointing out that they can't realistically obtain evidence for or against at this point since it's all on distant times and places we can't see or investigate in a serious way. Alternatively, them being among us, and right now in modern times, has the issue of lacking hard evidence from the one place in all of creation we can most easily gather it from. And we can say lacking hard evidence 
because even though there is much evidence offered, it obviously isn't super compelling since most people aren't convinced, though that doesn't necessarily mean it isn't true. We can point to countless theories over the years where even after most experts came to accept it as true, most of the public did not. So this point and counterpoint are just as bad as our surely they can't all be wrong argument of a moment before. The sheer quantity of evidence, defining that simply as things offered as evidence, does not constitute proof any more than the quantity of witnesses or believers, but so too, that the evidence is not considered compelling by most people does not in any way invalidate it. Bad evidence also doesn't mean something is incorrect, any more than a lot of bad evidence adds up to good evidence. A debunked UFO sighting does not mean aliens don't visit us, just that that case was wrong, and it's just as wrong to assume a hundred debunked claims invalidates them all as to assume a hundred shaky sightings means at least one was true. I should also note another bad line of reasoning from the skeptic side, a saying popularized by the late great Carl Sagan is that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Which is catchy, but I think Laplace said it better centuries ago with, the weight of evidence for an extraordinary claim must be proportioned to its strangeness. Here's the problem with alien visitors, it's not an extraordinary claim at all. Indeed one of the reasons so many of us, even though we grew up on sci-fi and would love to meet aliens, don't think they're out there is exactly because it isn't weird that aliens would visit us, it would be weird if they did not. And why is that so? As we've discussed before, we can't use the reasoning that Earth is boring to them, Kansas is almost proverbially boring yet still gets tons of visitors who seem to disagree, and we have non-exclusivity again. There are endless groups of people who are devoted enthusiasts, or even professionals, on topics that most of us do not care about even a little bit. In a vast interstellar empire, you would expect an even more varied array of interests. Nor can we use the we would just be ants to them line of reasoning, because intelligence does not scale well to apathy or indifference. Humans try to talk and interact with things much less intelligent than themselves all the time, far more than critters less intelligent than us do. It's not vanity to assume aliens would be interested in us, it's implying cats or cows would be more interested in trees than us since they are closer to them in intelligence than we are. And while I suppose we can't take as a given that intelligence and curiosity are exclusive, that the one always brings the other, this is a case where it only has to be true in a minority of cases, you'd have to argue virtually every intelligent species out there either wasn't curious or didn't find us interesting, not that most all or would. We also should not assume a civilization of godlike superintelligences doesn't also include lots of members who didn't opt for such massive enhancement, something we'll discuss more another time. But fundamentally, it seems like intelligence should be very interesting to other intelligence, higher or lower. So we have an obvious motivation to come check in on Earth, and indeed most motives for not doing so are the flawed ones. Again, those of us in the rare civilization camp don't view such behavior as improbable, 
quite the contrary, we tend to consider it very likely aliens would visit, and them not doing so is viewed as the strongest indicator they don't exist, putting us closer to the aliens amongst us crowd in that respect than most other Fermi Paradox solution camps. But this doesn't imply a single motive for the visit, and as we review some of those, it's worth noting that not only would each motive tend to result in different approaches, but that it would be quite likely several groups, either different species or different factions of one species, could be operating at the same time with different goals and methods. We are going to argue from the advocate position for the most part, though we'll point out weaknesses as we go. We should start with Hollywood's favorite one, that they want to take over Earth. Now alien invasions with a large scouting force or covert vanguard mostly do not make sense on surface inspection because they are not really needed. It always helps to know your enemy, but anyone capable of interstellar flight already enjoys an obscene advantage, and so we can only rule out this scenario for the specific cases of wanting to utterly sterilize our planet or outright conquer us through sheer intimidation and force. What little intel they need, even for the latter, could be harvested from our old radio transmissions. They would have no need to send ships in for decades in advance, exposing themselves to risk of detection. Though on the flip side of even that, as valuable as shock and awe are to winning conflicts, they don't need it, and if conquest rather than extermination is their goal, exposing themselves enough to make folks think about the existence of aliens and ponder these scenarios could be beneficial, since there's a strong chance they don't want us all to have a total mental breakdowns when they arrive, rendering us useless. Of course that raises the question of what we are actually useful for. In terms of raw materials, while Earth has plenty, none are unique or particularly dense here, and we know nobody is low on these because we can't see that dark wave that would accompany a civilization expanding ever outward grabbing all the resources they can, see the Dyson Dilemma for details, but we can say with near certainty that no existing civilization is out trying to hoard all the galactic resources up. That's another example of a conclusion though that tends to add to the rare intelligence argument, since it would seem logical to do so. If they did want those materials though, they need not scout us, they could simply sterilize the planet and harvest it. It has to be something Earth has, or life-bearing planets in general, that makes them of interest. That's noteworthy too because as we mentioned, while it would seem like intelligent life would be curious about other life on principle, whoever is showing up here definitely has an interest in Earth. Not necessarily humans, but probably. So even if there are aliens who take no interest in us, even if they were the majority, they are not the majority of the ones visiting us. So what do we have, and furthermore, what do we have that would require landings? Samples of flora and fauna would be a good one, and indeed would require many landings to collect. Evolution has so many outcomes that each planet really should possess totally unique ecosystems. This does have the problem of scale though, forgetting just how huge space and time are compared to human civilization. We don't mutate that much in a few thousand years, 
and odds are if civilizations are decently common, folks have been free to swing by and collect samples for many millions of years without fear of causing problems by being seen. And now they need not do so, since we collect such things ourselves and they could be confident that we grab samples and keep them stored as digital versions too. They'd already have everything from prehistoric times, so even if we nuked or gray gooed ourselves before creating such archives, they'd only be out a little bit of data. But data's a big reason too, which we'll get to in a moment. But the same applies to medical data regarding humans. They doubtless want their own collection of medical knowledge, having better instruments and skills than us, but they'd already have it, or even if they were new on the scene themselves, some other order civilization nearby probably has it available. As to the behavioral stuff, we obviously differ a lot from our prehistoric ancestors in that respect, but they really can pick that up from TV and radio, though we can't rule out they'd want to grab people for some intense brain scanning in some very high-tech version of an MRI machine. But if they're willing to do lots of landings and abductions, why not be a bit more clever? and not taint the experiment by using someone either in a panic or drugged up condition by just sneaking little assembler robots into people's houses to build covert scanners. If you want human DNA, why not abduct a mailbox and pull thousands of samples from the letters? If you want very direct observations of behavior, why not hit a delivery warehouse when it's closed and replace a bunch of items with duplicates with built-in cameras or scanners, or even hit a grocery store where they could whip up a scanner that could be hidden in a can of beef stew and would be destroyed during digestion to hide evidence of it. We always should assume any species smart enough to build spaceships will be decent at strategy and tactics, and a lot of motivations that fit a given assumed behavior go down the drain because we can instantly spot better and less risky approaches. We can't take for a given that they could easily mimic our behavior for instance, even after having tons of radio and TV to emulate, but if they could, why not just land a small team of androids with a few metric tons of gold somewhere and have them go off and form a server farm, using the access and revenues from that to buy copies or originals of anything that wasn't easily available online. So probably not information. The internet is much younger than UFO sightings to be sure, but they are still ongoing based on claimed sightings. If they just want our art or literature or history, they at most only need to land a few times to establish an internet connection. We can paint one plausible scenario for that though, because it is very easy to imagine Earth's on a quarantine list of local civilizations, or whichever empire we border on, or actually inside of. A strong motivator for that would be to preserve the local culture as something unique as long as possible, and that implies a value on that which would also encourage surveillance and sneaking out cultural artifacts. If we are anything to go by, it would be easy to imagine there was such a ban, but it wasn't enforced terribly well, and that there was a big trade in artifacts from primitive civilizations. We are now contemplating small, often short-term operations that are trying to avoid drawing too much attention from us or the local officials, and who likely have competitors. So an alien conspiracy to acquire high-value objects, 
run on the shoestring of resources of smugglers, each not sharing with each other, could actually generate something like the observations we see. Heck, they might have rather shoddy ships, Millennium Falcon style, and take pot shots at each other to run off the competition. Considering one of the major objections to UFO sightings being genuine aliens is that you'd think they'd not crash or get spotted so often with their advanced technology, the notion that they're harassing competition and trying to draw attention to each other to scare them off makes some sense. Interestingly, it actually gives a good motivation to covertly work with governments too. After all, the Smithsonian or British Natural History Museum would have to be absolute gold mines for any illicit dealers in human artifacts, as would any law enforcement agency that tried to track regular old human black market dealings in such things. It would explain the inconsistencies in motives too. I could easily see some alien smuggler spinning stories of invasions and a need for secret cooperation to some senior government official. It would be really amusing if the conspiracy theories all turned out mostly right, but in reality it was a bunch of different groups of unethical alien smugglers hoodwinking various departments into helping them, thus resulting in a crazy cluster of apparently contradictory motivations, and the very senior-most officials genuinely not thinking it was going on. It's funny because I can't think of a novel or film where someone's done or suggested this scenario before, and it's probably one of the better ones. I suspect that maybe it's just not melodramatic or sinister enough to draw the interest of writers or conspiracists. Aliens don't need us for food or labor, they could always clone us for meat and ought to have very good robots. They certainly don't need us for soldiers, they'd have evolved too and Darwin doesn't tolerate wimps. So even if they don't like fighting, they are likely to be very good at it especially if they are on top of this region of the galaxy enough to be enforcing quarantine on primitive planets. We always have to remember when discussing alien civilizations that there is an implied plurality there. One thinking about exterminating us has to worry about repercussions from neighbors, but for specific behavior here, we can contemplate that we probably would be inside or on the edge of one specific civilization that claimed oversight of our world. And that might shift over time too, changes within themselves in terms of policy or someone else gaining local dominance. A species dedicated to protecting primitive worlds might lose interest in that path after several millennia and leave a gap in their enforcement or turn it over to someone else with slightly different policies. They will have neighbors to worry about, since if we assume we arose near them, then others would have too, so hobbies like eating intelligent species when they could just clone them, or hunting aliens for sport when they could use virtual reality are likely to be curtailed from diplomacy even if their own ethics don't. And it is very easy to imagine inhabited primitive worlds being labeled no-go zones but that enforcement being suboptimal especially when it's getting obvious a world won't be in isolation much longer. You can shrug at minor and mostly ignored visitations since they only encourage folks to think on aliens more and get a bit more psychologically ready for when the mothership arrives to open formal, official talks. Any artifact smuggling cartel that gets too energetic or visible gets slapped down, the rest mostly get ignored. Lazy and underfunded, but with an appearance of high-minded ethics, 
which would certainly describe a lot of government regulatory bodies. So we can see some fairly plausible motives and behaviors do exist that could permit UFO sightings folks report, though I can't say even those are fairly likely. Again we've got the core issue of seemingly inevitable expansion and non-exclusivity we discussed in the Dyson Dilemma and Compendium episodes. So I can't call it a good solution, but I actually do think it's better than most of the other ones people throw into the ring, amusingly while often mocking the folks that subscribe to this one. And after years of doing episodes and running forums that discuss this topic, I think I've heard every one ever dreamed up. Please don't take this as encouragement toward flying saucers though, again most such theories are terribly weak. They rely on evidence that gets shouted from every rooftop when found, and ignored when someone debunks it or offers up a solid but mundane alternative, and all the witnesses don't really help, since there's less excuse for such typically low quality evidence, especially in this era of smartphones. But whether the evidence is good enough or not, it still has to link together to create a decent explanation of goals, motives, and behaviors. Mind you, it need not be flawless, we don't perfectly execute all objectives by always choosing the most logical action and faultlessly adhering to it, but any time a scenario is suggested, you need to poke at it and ask what the ultimate objective would be and if you could think of an easier way to do it. So if someone suggests the alien's end goal is to replace us with hybrids of us and aliens for instance, you have to stop and ask why they'd want to do that instead of say, dropping a virus down on us that killed only humans and just landing their own colonists, regular or bioform to our environment, down on the planet a month later and mopping up any survivors. Any conspiracy to suppress knowledge of them needs to be examined for why our own officials, militaries, and scientists would go along with it, and needs to rely on something better than raw greed or personal survival if it would represent a threat to humanity itself. A motivation for secrecy, like those folks keeping a secret because we'll all die otherwise might make sense, but it's really hard to concoct a scenario where aliens would reach out to us when they didn't want us to know but needed some to know. There are some though, sadly they aren't terribly melodramatic or sinister so rarely get discussed, like the Orion Department of Education reaching out to governments and saying they need our help collecting anthropological data but don't want to screw our culture up by an overt and undeniable presence, and in exchange for some help suppressing the information enough that most folks will doubt it, they'll make sure no asteroids whack us or anything really terminal happens to us like a runaway greenhouse effect, so we can relax and continue to evolve naturally, but if it gets out to the point everybody knows and believes it's going on, they're out of there because their studies are wrecked, no more covert safeguard against extreme disasters or payoffs of their patronage when we hit the galactic stage. I don't think that's too probable either, but it is semi-viable and plausible, Again, it's just not sinister and exciting. And while it's true that reality is often stranger than fiction, paranoia often results from ignoring the mundane simply because one wants it to be more exciting. The notion that flying saucers are abducting mailboxes or people's attic collection of baseball cards and comic books to sell on the black market just isn't thrilling, but thrilling or not, it is probably more likely than them having an obsession with proctology or damaging crops.
So we've been talking about aliens and logical fallacies today, and it reminded me how important it is to develop our own logical faculties to make sense of the world. And the best way for that is to actively practice it. So I thought we'd end today with a fun puzzle about aliens from our friends over at Brilliant to give you something to puzzle over till next week. Here it is. The alien king has servants with six, seven, or eight legs. The servants with seven legs always lie, but the servants with either six or eight legs always say the truth. One day, four servants met. The blue one says, Altogether, we have twenty-eight legs. The green one says, Altogether, we have twenty-seven legs. The yellow one says, Altogether, we have twenty-six legs. The red one says, Altogether, we have twenty-five legs. What is the color of the servant that says the truth? Again, that puzzle is from Brilliant, and one of my favorite features are their daily problems in math, science, and engineering, which I often enjoy as morning brain warm-ups with my coffee. These puzzles are great learning tools, and if you like the daily problem, then there's more like it in the course on the left, so that you can explore the concept in great detail and further develop your framework. If you'd like to see more puzzles, go to Brilliant.org slash IsaacArthur and sign up for free and gain access to their huge catalog of daily problems, interactive quizzes, and courses. And also, the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription, so you can view all the daily problems in the archives and unlock every course. We spend a lot of time on the channel talking about moving colonists to brand new worlds or how to move millions of folks through the interstellar void, but next week we'll explore how a single traveler might make their way from world to world in Hitchhiking the Galaxy. The week after that we'll look at Clark Tech, hypothetical technologies so advanced they are indistinguishable from magic. And three weeks from now, we'll at long last return to the Civilizations at the End of Time series in Dying Stars. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell, and if you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button and share it with others. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.